You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where very often, people are strange. <sighs> okay, yeah, I can't make every opening statement a gem. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are under when you're down, when you're strange. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. As always, this is an internet radio show dedicated blah dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters Guy Gardner and Kyle Wake, the greatest Green Lanterns ever to grace the grand something else with a G. Hi, my name's Sean Engel, and today we're going to be covering, as usual, two comics. First up, Green Lantern number 39, which finishes up the story with Adam Strange. It's the intro music, because I'm unoriginal. But it's a great story, and it kind of uh, it kind of ends on a weird note. Hal, over the past few issues, has been saying that he's wanting to get back with Carol, and something happens to change his mind in this issue. It's pretty heady and pretty wordy, and there's a lot of stuff going on. My synopsis may not be the most in-depth this time around, simply because a lot of the stuff that's covered in the book is very wordy and very cerebral and very Silver Age. And unfortunately, it's not the Silver Age stuff that I like dealing with. I mean, the stuff with big-headed freaks and giant monkeys. The whole Urgono thing and Olivia Reynolds just doesn't really work for me. But that's not saying it's a bad story. It's interesting, but very Silver However, the comic that definitely stands out as being a 90s comic is today's issue of Guy Gardner, number 8, where Guy fights perhaps the most 90s villain, or I guess anti-hero, that DC Comics produced. Yep, if you thought Guy got away with taking the ring out of the Guy Gardner Reborn storyline, away from Lobo, you were mistaken, because the main man always collects on his debts. Plus, we get some more great Staten art, as Staten draws a wonderful-looking Lobo, despite the fact that he's very, very 90s. And we get an excellent fight sequence in the book, which, again, might be kind of skimmed over synopsizing, because, yeah, it's a lot of visuals, and I really can't represent visuals here in an audio podcast. But before we get to that, let's play some promos for some excellent podcasts you should be listening to, get back we'll do letters and then get on to green lantern number 39 so we'll see you after the break when you're strange no one remembers your name when you're strange when you're strange when you're strange Just who the hell are you? 
He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can you just get down to it, please? Apparel attack. All hands battle Monthly Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. In a world where planets die, I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look! What man will wear spandex? Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. And this time, you wonderful, wonderful listeners have responded to my request and have filled the email bag with tons of emails. So, let's go ahead and get to those. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first email this week comes from Mr. Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive, uh, purveyor of the websites Bing Carter Hall and El Jacone's Comic Bunker, and also the host who's taking us through the Mario Bava, as well as other Italian horror films on Two True Freak sites, the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. 
go check that out. And also, just to plug the show, it is kind of late, uh, but if you want to go back and listen to the uh, Vault's Halloween episode, everyone put up a really great, really creepy story, and a lot of them were original, and mine had Andrew Leyland, so I guess that had something going for it. But Luke's here. <laughs> Sorry, Andy, I throw you under the bus there. I, I just kind of criticized myself because the other guys came up with the original stuff, and I went and did a Edgar Allan Poe thing. Poe, not Edgar Allan Poe. But it was awesome doing that with Andrew. But let's, uh, uh, off topic, let's go back to Luke's email, which has the title of Recent, parentheses, Read Vintage, and parentheses, Ads in GL Comics. Sean, I wanted to write in about a few of the ads you have talked about recently in your coverage of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. I love ads from this time period because, like you, I saw them month in and month out, as, as the same sort of ads seem to run in both DC and Marvel. Regarding the WWF WrestleMania games, the 16-bit versions, the Genesis and SNES, were pretty good. My brother and I had a Genesis, and as, a huge, as huge wrestling fans, we got it for Christmas in 92. These games were notable for being the first WWF games to feature the signature moves of the wrestlers, such as Hulk Hogan's leg drop and Macho Man Randy Savage's flying elbow drop. Yeah, I remember that being a big selling point of these games. Prior to this, I remember playing the actual NES version of wrestling, which had didn't have WWF particular characters, but they had sort of analogs for them. And they did have special moves, but they really weren't all that cool. Well, except for this one character that was a fish guy or a sort of creature from the Black Lagoon wrestler who had a special move that was basically chomping on the other person's head. It was creepy. But going back to the email, Luke continues, Of the guys you didn't recognize from the Genesis roster... IRS was Erwin R. Scheister, an evil tax accountant who would accuse the audience of being tax cheats. He wrestled in a collared shirt, a red tie, and dockers. You might remember him as Mike Rotunda, who was a member of the Varsity Club back in the NWA, before he jumped over to WWF. His biggest title as IRS was Tag Team Champ, with Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, collectively known as Money Incorporated. Now, that name... Definitely rings a bell. I know who Ted DiBiase is, and I think I may have seen some matches with him, so I just forgot who the character was. Luke continues, Papa Shango's character was that of a crazy voodoo priest who would curse his opponents to burst into flame or leak black ooze from their head. Yeah, it was about as lame as it sounds. Several years later, Charles Wright would go on to play Kama, the Supreme Fighter, and then find much greater renown as the Godfather, a pimp character who would enter the ring with half a dozen quote-unquote hoes as his valets. The British Bulldog in this case is Davy Boy Smith. You might remember the tag team of the British Bulldogs, which was Smith and Dynamite Kid, who feuded with the Hart Foundation in the 80s. Yep, again I remember the Hart Foundation, I remember the British Bulldogs. Smith became singles competitor after Dynamite was forced to retire, collective neck and back injuries have left him with paralysis in his left leg, and found his success and found success as a single. Unfortunately, Smith died much too early, suffering a fatal heart attack at age 39. 
That's one of the sad things about these professional wrestlers. Uh, the stuff that they do, although it is for entertainment, is very physical, and we've had far too many of these guys die in really actually tragic accidents. You know, the hearts being a, another one of these people. But going on, uh, Luke says, his son, Harry Smith, a.k.a. D.H. Smith, continues in the business, and it's borderline eerie. The way that he moves around the ring and throws certain moves looks a lot like his father. Yeah, I could imagine a wrestler who takes on the persona that, uh, uh, or takes on a wrestling persona and looks a lot like his father who unfortunately passed away because of injuries due to wrestling would be a bit creepy. Lou continues on, I ended up reading Batman and Predator in collected edition when my mother found it at a library book sale. It's not a bad miniseries, dealing with, you guessed it, a predator landing in Gotham City to go hunting and ending up crossing the Batman. Around the same time, Dark Horse and Valiant got together and released Magnus, Robot Hunter vs. Predator. This series was very cool, and it took place in the 30th century of Magnus' book, and deals with a group of yuppie hunters trying to kill a predator as a trophy. Needless to say, it does not go well for them. Now, that is one character that I know of, but I've never actually read, the Magnus Robot Hunter. I've heard it's good stuff, and from what I can gather, all the stuff that... Or I'll just go ahead and say it. Most of the stuff that I've read from Dark Horse around this time has always been excellent. So I will take your word on it that this was probably a good book to get. Heading back, Luke says, Speaking of Valiant, the book from Entertainment This Month Hot List, Solar, was Solar Man of the Atom, the revival of the old Gold Key series. I've never read it, but the book is still held in high, high regard, as there are lots of the early val- as are lots of the early Valiants. They're just somewhat hard to find now due to the small print runs. I'm also pretty sure that the Star Wars number one from the ETM was Dark Horse's Star Wars Dark Empire number one. This book was selling for twelve to fifteen dollars an issue when it first started hitting the back issue market, and it caused a huge amount of excitement at the time. Yeah, I remember the Dark Empire story. Um, it was essentially the storyline that carried on after Return of the Jedi, and it involved Luke basically succumbing to the dark side, if I recall, and almost becoming a new emperor. Uh, definitely go and check out Two True Freaks Star Wars Monthly Mondays. I'm pretty certain they'll be covering this. I'm not really certain, however, what Scott and Chris think about it. Back to the email, Luke says, The HIV PSA with Robin is a good one. However, it always reminds me of the one which Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean did for handling, for handing out in high schools, featuring Death of the Endless and John Constantine entitled Death Talks About Life. In the early to mid-90s, AIDS awareness activism was at an all-time high, and DC certainly got in on it. It was just Death talking to the reader, but it was straight talk from the most straight-talking of DC's characters at the time. At one point, when Constantine is embarrassed about talking about how to put on a condom, Death asks the reader, which would you rather be, a little embarrassed or a lot dead? She also has one of my favorite statements of hers from any comic. Quote, Oh, and of course, there's another side effect to unsafe sex. I mentioned at the beginning of this comic, it's called life. Good stuff. The PSA is repented in Death, the High Cost of Living Trade Paperback, which is highly recommended. Yeah, Luke, I completely forgot about that one, and actually, I appreciate you sending me a link for that in the email, because I had actually never read that. 
And to be honest, that is perhaps the most, well, honest, truthful, informative, and well done PSA I could ever see dealing, you know, with the issue of AIDS. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It doesn't leave anything out. It gives you information, which is what any good PSA needs to do. It doesn't politicize it. It just gets the information out there and does it with a bit of sort of twisted humor. I mean, John Constantine being all embarrassed about putting a condom on a banana and then the comedy of, you know, death afterwards saying that after you're done with it, you can eat the banana is just priceless. I'm going to try and put a, put a link to it in the uh, show notes at the website, justoneoftheguys.libson.com. So if my listeners have not ever seen this, they can go to the site and actually read it because it is honestly one of the best public service announcements for any type of message that they need to get out there. Really great stuff. Thanks for reminding me of it, Luke. He goes back, on a lighter note, I did want to mention that the film, of which your Libsyn page takes its name from, Just One of the Guys, is now available for free viewing on Crackle.com. Haven't seen this one. Not sure that I want to. Although I do love 80s movies, so maybe I'll give it a watch. Yeah. All I can tell you, Luke, is the only thing I remember from the Just One of the Guys movie is the lead character, whose name completely escapes me, at the end flashing her breast to the uh, football player jock friend that she wanted to uh, wanted him to fall in love with her. And if that's the only thing that you can remember from the movie, well, I think that doesn't say much about the movie. Finishing up, Luke says, Anyway... Very much enjoying the show. You're right up to where I started reading Green Lantern, so I'm eager to hear your take on the upcoming issues. Keep up the great work, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Again, check out Luke's uh, podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. He should be coming up with a new one here in a few. Uh, Definitely, if you're a fan of giant Japanese monsters, you're going to love this show. Our next email comes from Mr. Jay Ferguson, and it, it is titled RE Guy Gardner Number 1. And Jay has to say, First, I wanted to say that I really love your show. I've been pretty far behind, and I've been catching up over the last day or so. Just got to episode 32, which featured the first issue of Guy Gardner's solo series, which was truly excellent. My sentiments exactly, Jay. It was great to hear your enthusiasm for the Guy Gardner books and getting some nice digs in at Hal's expense. I like Hal, all right, especially as written by He Who Shall Not Be Named. But in this era, and earlier, Hal is a grade-A tool. Uh, I won't disagree with you there. It's really cool to find out that Terry Beatty, who is not only the co-creator of the awesome characters Miss Tree and Wild Dog with Max Allen Collins, okay, only one of those characters is really awesome, but I do have a soft spot in my heart for Wild Dog but who also inked the animated Batman comics for around a decade, and as an instructor at the Minneapolis College for Art and Design, taught me pretty much everything I knew about inking. Was the inker on the almost all the issues of Guy's solo series before the change in titles. Yeah, I didn't know that Terry Beatty was actually doing uh, art instruction. That's really cool, because after he dropped off the uh, Batman titles, he pretty much went away. So I'm glad that he's passing on his skills that he used in the comics medium to other up-and-coming artists and creators. That's really cool, and 
Jay, uh, I mentioned this in the email. If you've got some sort of uh, artwork or an actual comic that you'd like me to plug, please let me know about it, and I'll talk about it on the air. I'm more than willing to do that. Jay continues. So I was kind of excited about that. Anyway, keep up the good work, and I'm, I'm, since I'm listening to episode 33 while writing this, I really enjoyed your political jokes in that episode. And if you're looking for some modern comics with good onomatopoeia, you should check out the incredible Hercules in collections, because when it starts to hit its stride, it may be some of the funniest onomatopoeia out there. Best switches, Jay Ferguson. Jay, I have gone to in-stock trades, and I've checked out the issues that you talked about, about the Incredible Hercules, and they are on my wish list for Christmas. So hopefully I'll be getting some of those uh, from a certain spouse of mine. Well, obviously the only spouse of mine, because I'm not a polygamist, and besides that would be illegal. And not really fun. But thank you again, Jay, for recommending that, and I can't wait to check those books out. Then our next letter comes from Dave Walker host of the awesome podcast Flash Legacies, a podcast dealing with the character of Wally West, the third hero to be known as the Flash. Dave just got an episode out, well, it'll be about a couple of weeks ago now, but he covered, I think, issues 11, 12, and 13 of the ish- of the series, and he's now up to the era where uh, Greg LaRocque and, not Mark Wade, but... William Messner Loeb is taking over the book. So it'll be an interesting new era that uh, Dave's going to be covering on Flash Legacies. But Dave writes in, Hey Sean, I just wanted to praise you on how you handled the fight in Guy Gardner number 3. Having literally just read the first seven issues the week before the release of the episode in which you covered this, I was really curious as to what exactly you were going to do. And I think you went with the best choice. Yeah, Trying to describe everything that was going on in the issue would have been a task and probably would have been pretty tedious for the listeners. And having to listen to my voice for however long I do this podcast is tedious enough for the listeners. Anyway, Dave continues on. The conversation with Mr. Leyland was a bit odd, though purely because it was kind of a continuation of some of the stuff that we talked about before mixed in with some stuff that I talked to Andy about after. And if you've gotten listening to Hate Kids Comics Maximum Carnage number one, you'll probably know what. It was almost a little bit like eavesdropping. Yeah, uh, we kind of cover the same stuff, specifically because I really love to know what the people who live in UK, who have always had Doctor Who around, think about the new Doctor Who. And I've. I'll make a no bones about it. I've been a big fan of Doctor Who, and I'm finally getting to catch up via Netflix on some of the stuff that I missed, the Sylvester McCoy stuff, and hopefully I'll be picking up on some of the Colin Baker stuff too. I've heard that that has a sort of underrated run as he really was looked down on as a character because his initial, you know, his initial outing was of him being kind of a jerk. So I'm Definitely can't wait to catch on some of that stuff, and I was glad to talk to you and Mr. Leyland about it. Well, I'm sorry, Sir Andrew, as he likes to be called nowadays. Dave continues on, I've not read as far as issue 8 of Guy Gardner as yet, as I'm going to try and follow along with the series as you're covering it. Issue 8 itself is one of my favorite issues, purely due to the fact that it's one of the few comics that I've received as a present. Thank you. Well, 
Dave, you're really welcome. Uh, you mentioned in uh, some emails to me that you were reading along and were missing this issue, and I thought, uh, being your birthday, I could uh, not only give you the uh, issue of Flash, I think number 33, uh, that you needed to fill out your uh, issue list, but also fill you in with this, because any time I can help people out to uh, read a little Guy Gardner comic, I'm more than willing to do that. Dave finishes up, I'm also looking forward to the changes that will be coming at the start of the new year with what you'll be covering. I'm not going to say what they are, but if you've read anything with Hal Jordan the past 15 or so years, then you should already know. And I'm curious about what happens with Guy's story from around this time. Well, I'll give you a little clue. Something bad happens with Hal, and something alien and wonky happens with Guy. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, finish this up. Thanks for making such a great show, Dave Walker. Thanks again for writing in, Dave. I really appreciate it. And Please get on Flash Legacies. This is an excellent podcast. Dave has a great sense of humor, and he's covering an awesome series of The Flash. Again, he's kind of paralleling the idea that I am. He's taking a character that was kind of looked on as a goofball in the Wally West Flash, kind of a second stringer next to Barry Allen and trying to do him some justice that he may not be getting. Well, he's definitely not getting in today's DC universe. Then going back to the mailbag, we've got a one in from Mr. Robert Ward. He says episode, uh, the title of it is episode 36 clear up. He says, hello, I started listening to your podcast and I just wanted to comment on how much I'm enjoying your shows. Well, thanks Robert. I appreciate you listening. Uh, your sense of humor is great, and one of the few shows that I've actually been able to catch up on and find myself anxiously awaiting every week for a new episode. Wow, that's that's completely awesome. Thank you. Uh, the following are just two quick things I've had to say. The first is a bit of off-the-air stuff, but the second is regarding the Jordan family from episode twenty-six or 36. I'm not going to read the stuff that he uh, mentioned in the first part, but just to say, Robert... I was more than glad to do that, and I appreciate the fact that you're dealing with this as well, and it, it, it Thomas is a great guy, and I was glad to promote that, so thank you very much for writing in about that. Um, second part of the email, he goes, I'm not following the show with you, so I don't know what the Jordan brothers looked like in the 90s, but I just wanted to clarify something, since I do own the Green Lantern Omnibus number one. The Jordan brothers and the whole, quote-unquote, is Jim Jordan Green Lantern thing dates back to December 1961 in Green Lantern number 9. The Jordan triplets, and I use the words triplets because they look completely and utterly the same, with very little to separate them, are introduced as well as the whole spiel about Jim. You see, in the early days, Green Lantern wasn't afraid of making jokes about Superman. Starting very early in the run, fans could read several cracks at the Man of Ste- about the Man of Steel, and in issue 9, we're introduced to Sue Williams, who obviously will later become Mrs. Jim Jordan, becoming Lotus, Lois Lane and absolutely certain that Jim doesn't need glasses, acts scatterbrain, takes them off, and becomes GL. Why Jim and not the other two brothers, Jack and Hal, I don't think is explained. But there you go. I say becomes Lois Lane because there's clear knowledge of her and her Silver Age antics with Soup's. Then he gives a quote from the comic that says, I see I'll have to do something drastic. He's too smart to give himself away. 
and I have an idea swipe from Lois Lane's routine with Superman. It's risky, but it's a surefire way to get the proof I need. And in case you want to know the spoiler, GL, in typical abuse of his superpowers, is flying around scattering flyers for Jack Jordan's campaign to become DA. Nice. Hal's using his superpowers basically to promote his brother's political campaign. Wonder what the Guardians in the Universe would think about that. But he continues on. So, of course, he happened to be there when Sue, quote-unquote, accidentally falls over the apartment ledge, and he saves her. <laughs> yes, this sounds like typical <laughs> typical Lois Lane Silver Age goofiness, where, oh, I'll do anything to try and prove that Clark Kent is Superman, and, of course, Clark obviously outwits Lois by, I don't know, flying around the sun or using one of the Superman robots or, you know, giving her a kiss that sucks her mind clean. I don't know. It's Silver Age fun. But, Robert, thank you for writing in. I really appreciate the uh, email, and I appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show, and keep on uh, listening. And that would have been the last email, but we just got a one, oh, not only two hours ago from the time recording this, from Mr. Dave Walker again. And Dave writes in again, Hey, Sean. Now, this isn't really pertaining to the uh, Green Lantern issue, but I'm going to read it anyway. He says, I was listening to the Vault episode yesterday. I'm going to have to read me some more Poe at some point. It was excellent, and it worked well with the gravitas of English accentness. I don't know if accentness is a word, but I'm going to say it anyway. I also got to listening to Hope and Shag talking Doctor Who. I'm going to have to try and find some stuff about the audio drama, Paul McGann stuff. Have you ever encountered any of the stuff involving Doctor Who number 8? Now, other than the TV movie from Fox, which... It is what it is. It wasn't the best Doctor Who thing, but I don't think that was particularly because of Paul McGann. I thought he was admirable in the role. I don't think the movie itself was all that good. As for the audio drama, that would have to be Shag's, uh, I guess, wheelhouse. Because... I haven't listened to any of the audio drama, and I'm just now getting started back and listening to some of the old, or watching some of the older episodes, either on Netflix or renting them from Netflix. But Dave continues, the movie was fun enough, and I think that he was kind of shafted with not having a proper series. I would have to agree. That said, we might not have had, we might not have gotten the other Doctors had that happened. And I have to agree, uh, if McGann uh, carried on with the Doctor and it was done by an American or done for an American audience, I'm wondering if uh, interest in it would have waned to the point where a Doctor Who revival would have been pretty much something that wouldn't happen. Who knows? Uh, Dave continues on, The Maximum Carnage episode doesn't have me on it, but it, but it has to be one of my favorites because the first five minutes and... Eric Bana. Yes, uh, uh, Michael and Andrew over at Hey Kids Comics get into uh, how good of a character Eric Bana was in the Hulk movie. Needless to say, there's disagreement. Uh, Finally, he finishes up, I do believe I have digital copies of pretty much all the Green Lantern stuff up to last year sometime. Should you find yourself lacking on that front, feel free to let me know. I do find it strange that my interest in podcasting, or at least comics podcasting, stems from making a similar offer to someone sharing digital copies of Spider-Man. 
That's when they told me about Amazing Spider-Man Classics, the podcast that they were doing, and where that's... I'm sorry. And from there, it just spiraled. Anyway, hope you're doing well, Dave. Yeah, um... To be honest, to fold back the curtain, the way that I found about Comic Books Podcast was, again, from Michael Bailey. Uh, I was working a job where I worked nights, and we didn't have... We worked in an enclosed room where we really couldn't get, you know, good radio signal. So we decided to look for things on the internet to listen to. We'd listen to audiobooks and stuff like that, but uh, a friend of mine found this podcast, and it happened to be Views from the Long Box, where... Michael was talking about random comic book stuff. That spiraled off from, from Crisis to Crisis, then Two True Freaks, then the myriad other shows, and got me into doing this. So, I guess everyone in the podcasting community has Michael Bailey to thank for our addiction. Thank you, Michael Bailey. But, uh, 30 or so minutes in, that basically ends the email bag. So, I'd like to thank everyone for writing in. Uh, this is the most letters I've gotten in a long time, and I'm really glad that I got to talk about them and answer them. Thanks, everyone, for sending in letters. And if you guys want to send in letters, uh, the email address will be at the end of the show. But for now, let's turn around and let's go do our synopsis of Greenlander number 39. Greenlander 39 was cover dated early May 1993, with a release date on or about March 16th of 1993. Cover price $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $0.60 pence UK. The title was Life Forces. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler M.D. Bright, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Berganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Standing atop a hovering platform, slutty Ann Coulter lookalike Olivia Reynolds enthralled the accordion weaponers who have begun to fire upon her. Handing over Adam Strange's daughter Aaliyah to one of her followers, Olivia monologues about how she will use the power of the Ergono to steal the mental energy of the Cordians, and eventually the mental energy of all mankind. Adam screams that he wants his daughter back, and Hal tries to ring blast Olivia and free her from the Orgono. But the Queen of Cord pulls a mind whammy on Hal and fills him with self-doubt, effectively sapping his will. However, Adam Strange isn't affected, and he flies up and delivers a right cross to the face of the floating female, causing her to drop to the ground. As Adam searches for his daughter, Olivia calls her mind-controlled minions to catch her fall, as well as destroy the rocket-packed Ranian. Adam and Olivia create energy blasts until a ship flies between them and whisks Adam away. Furious, Olivia wonders who could be resisting her mind control, just as Adam Strange sees that his savior was not other than his daughter Aaliyah who is now being controlled by one of the alien Leglands. Meanwhile, Olivia keeps on monologuing about her desire for power, while Hal is busy being tied to an X-shaped crucifix and lowered to the uncontrolled throngs of Cordians, demanding his demise. Uncertain why he can't use his ring, Hal surmises that all of his self-doubt is due to a long-ago blast from the Ergono. Back with Adam Strange, his infant daughter is relating what bat guano craziness is going on with Olivia, the U-Mind, and herself. The Langland Jaeger, or Jagar, speaks to the infant and tells Adam how Olivia and she are the two people in the universe who can tap into the U-Mind. Jaeger slash Aaliyah says that Ergono is just the U-Mind without controls, and that Aaliyah is needed to fight against the U-Mind gone mad in Olivia. 
Adam Strange reluctantly gives in to the Langlands' wishes, allowing them to use his daughter to fight the Orgono. But just as he does, the infant's mind takes over and begins screaming for her daddy. Elsewhere, Hal is being lowered into the mob of the Cordians as he wrestles with his lack of will. Through some touchy-feely mumbo-jumbo, Hal begin- decides to be engulfed in the Orgono, which Olivia is more than willing to provide. Literally. But before she can devour Hal's manly essence, Super Saiyan baby Aaliyah pulls the spectral Hal away from Olivia, and Steve Ditko-S, Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland and Steve Ditko, 2011 and 1961, all rights reserved, is on. Sadly, the corporeal version of Hal plummets into the mob, but before he can be ripped apart, much like Stella, Hal gets his groove back and puts a green-powered beatdown on the weaponers. Hal then taps into Aaliyah's U-Mine with his ring and blasts Olivia, knocking the Ergono out of her. Not the excrement, the Ergono. However, the ring enhancement of the infant caused her to become as megalomaniacal as Olivia, and now she's on a rampage. Which, if you know children, having them on a rampage is not a good thing. But before she could undo all of reality, a vision of Alana, Adam Strange's dead wife, appears and calms the child down. Crisis averted, Adam Strange tells the Langland Hugar to keep his stinking paws off his daughter as Hal carries an unconscious Livia back to the crash site on Earth. Seeing that she is neither dead nor a hooker, Hal decides not to bury her out in the desert, but to watch over her and forgo dealing with Carol Ferris in favor of the possibility of some hot ginger almost and Coulter action. The end. Okay, like I said at the beginning, this is a very wordy issue, and it almost makes my brain hurt just trying to synopsize it. If this was just a giant fight scene like the Guy Gardner issue that we're going to be covering here in a while, I'd be more into it. But with all the jibber-jabber about self-doubt and mental powers and the Ergono, which I still am not just 100% sold on... I just kind of tuned out. Now, that being said, it's not a bad issue. It's actually a really good issue, but there's just a lot of density to it. It's very cerebral. It's one of those ones that, if I were to synopsize it totally, the issue would probably be about 10 minutes long. And listening to me talk for 10 minutes about this would probably make your ears bleed. But in order to forego that, we're going to quickly look through the notes of this, uh, starting with the cover, which is a a really Buck Rogers cover. Last time out, I used a lot of Flash Gordon music in there. I couldn't find any Buck Rogers music that would fit. But the cover is very Buck Rogers, as Adam Strange looks a lot like the classic 1930s uh, version of Buck Rogers, not the Gil Gerard and really, really incredibly hot Aaron Gray version. 
but it's got Adam on there floating up as Cordy uh, and Weaponers surround him and Hal as Hal is delivering a ring-powered punch to one of the faces of the Weaponers. While in the background, hot uh, Ann Coulter impersonator Olivia Reynolds holds uh, the baby Aaliyah in her hands with her incredibly short... Uh, well, they're not really Daisy Dukes anymore. They're uh, sort of uh, bikini briefs along with her uh, sword and gun. And speaking of guns, Adam Strange is holding the most ridiculously 90s gun I think we've seen in a while. It's it's huge. It, it is not a gun that you could, I would think, hold in one hand, but unfortunately that's the way it's made. So, hooray, let's hear it for 90s weaponry. Page one, again we get a little note from Gerard Jones in the, uh, in the uh, story credits that he's giving a hat tip to uh, Joe Felice, or Felice, who I guess worked with him a bit on the uh, Green Lantern Mosaic storyline. <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, Mike's World of Amazing Comics uh, doesn't really give any more information about what Joe Felice worked on, so this, I guess, is really his only big credit. So thanks, Gerard Jones, for mentioning him. Page 3, panel 3. Uh, this is carrying on with the uh, issue that we talked about over in Green Lantern's Light, episode number 13. Definitely go check it out. Not just because I was on it, but because it's an awesome episode. And uh, we get another shot of a hero punching a woman. But I guess if you think the characters and Coulter, you might feel a little bit better about it. Again, not advocating that we should punch either Ann Coulter or Oprah Winfrey. That would be bad. Page 4, panel 5. We get Olivia using her mental powers to have one of the Cordians step in front of the uh, laser shot that Adam Strange had aim- aimed at her. It's a kind of gruesome scene, and it's, uh, it's a use of a human shield, and it's something that we don't really see in comics of this time period, but I'm certain in the uh, new DC 52 we'd probably see it go on all around. Skipping ahead to page 8, panel 2, we get an image of Hal tied to a, uh, well, essentially a crucifix, except this time it's not in the more traditional uh, T fashion, it's in an X fashion. And I've got to say, it's a good look. Unfortunately, um, I think Uncanny X-Men number 251 did a lot better. Um, Yeah, I read X-Men comics at the time, and this one was a really good cover, which had uh, the Reavers, I think... uh, crucify Wolverine on an X crucifix. It was a pretty good cover, and of course it doesn't have anything to do with Green Lantern. Then on page 10, you know, I have to feel for Adam Strange here, because, yeah, I get kind of weirded out when my youngest daughter starts babbling on about stuff that I don't understand. However, it's my daughter is usually just talking about Pokemon or My Little Pony or something else kitty like that. Not big, heady world issues about you mines and ergonos or stuff. However, it'd be creepy if she talked about that, too, so try not to think about that. Pages 14 and 15, when Hal uh, decides to fight Olivia Reynolds, and uh, so does the infant Aaliyah, the uh, world gets a sort of weird, ethereal quality. The uh, inking, the dark inking goes away, and you're just basically left with colors. So it gets a sort of weird, uh, ethereal, very steep 
Ditko-esque Doctor Strange vibe, and I like the artwork here. Uh, it just shows how good an artist, uh, M.D. Bright, and how good a colorist Anthony Tolan can do with this book. Really enjoying it. And then again, harping on the artwork on page 16, uh, as Howells dropped uh, from the uh, cross and he actually regains his willpower, the shot of Hal breaking away from his uh, tied-up crucifixion is really awesome. Hal looks large and in charge. He doesn't look he doesn't look overly physically muscled. He looks like a just very fit hero. He doesn't look uh, Superman type strong, but he looks very fit. And all the proportions are right. His feet aren't ridiculously small. His arms aren't ridiculously big. It's a really nice piece of art, and it's very dynamic here. Again, Bright and Tangal and Tallinn as the colorist do a great job in this series. But then, finally, skipping on to page 22, panel 2, we've got, okay, so now Hal's into Olivia. So, is it just Hal getting all testosterone up from rescuing someone that makes him want to get busy with them? I mean, he did sort of the same thing after he rescued Carol from the being Star Sapphire. He wanted to get into her pants there, and now, because he's rescued Olivia Reynolds, he feels that he needs to do the same with her. Kind of weird. Then, of course, on the same page, panel 6, oh, great, a sort of red, ominous glow coming from the Sinestro doll. I have no idea what that could mean. But that finishes up my notes for Green Lantern. Let's go ahead and play a couple of promos, and then when we get done with those, we'll come back and I'll do my synopsis of Guy Gardner number 8. So, get your fragging boots on. It's go time. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. Short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing badly. Yes, well, badly is purely subjective. But how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages comics every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Metallo mixes us up a drinky drink? Metallo, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. 
What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear. Only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one glue factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. And we're back. And what you just heard there was a promo for the return of Superman Forever Radio, hosted by J. David Weeder. Uh, as the, at the time of recording, uh, his show has been back for uh, after a year-long hiatus, and let me tell you, it's off with a bang. He started out with the coverage of the Superman Batman Generations book, and he's only gotten better from there on in. So check out J. David's show, as well as his other shows, Pad Smash and Green Lantern's Light. All of them are great shows to listen to. But let's go ahead and start on our coverage of Guy Gardner number 8. Guy Gardner number 8 was cover dated May 1993, with a release date of April 6, 1993. Cover price again, $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $60P UK. Title was The Lord of the Ring. Plotter was Gerard Jones, scripter Will Jacobs, penciler Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Outside a NYC police station, probably right in front of Benson and Stabler, Repo and Goldface argue how they could have been taken down by a moron like Guy Gardner. Bemused by the baddies bitching, Guy tosses the two into jail commenting that they're the ones who got captured by Guy, so who's the real morons? Of course, press agent Bucky Sharp is there to ramp up Guy's Q rating, as he drags Guy and his arm candy Sally outside to address his adoring public. Guy, much like the band Loverboy, is loving every minute of it, until he catches a worried glimpse from Sally. Getting her and Bucky away from the throngs of people, Guy asks what's bothering his right-hand gal. Dropping them off at his new apartment, Sally says she wonders what she'll do now that she's no longer employed as a lady of the night. Guy asks her what she'd want to do if she had the funds, and Sally says, and Sally puts forth the idea of an escort detective agency. Okay. Interested by the plan, Guy writes Sally a blank check, saying he can always get more money from the Palindrodna lab. I guess. Sally asks how she can ever thank Guy, but Guy says not to thank him, but thank the ring. But a voice from the other room tells Guy that the ring is his now, as Lobo has come to Earth to claim what is his. Making the excuse that Lobo didn't live up to the specifics of the deal, Guy taunts the main man as a yellow construct fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, already reserved, breaks out. As Guy tries to subdue the last Zarian, he yells for Sally and Bucky to take cover. Guy and Lobo trash the city with fight, with both opponents having moments of triumph. 
but just as Guy is about to launch Lobo into orbit, his ring mysteriously gives out. As Lobo plummets back to Earth, Guy resolves that he's not giving up the ring, regardless of if it works or not. The main man pummels Guy with a flurry of punches, beating Guy nearly to death. But just as he's about to finish Guy off, the palindrods elapse, appear, and offer Lobo a hefty reward for the ring. Satisfied with the deal, Lobo lets Guy go, saying that one day he might just come and finish him off, if the price is right. And as Lobo heads off, Sally runs to Guy's side to check on her man. Guy wonders how the palindrod in the lab got here so fast, and they say Guy's sidekick, Bucky, contacted them. But because they had to deduct the money from Guy's future salary, Guy promptly fires Bucky. Sally says that she'll tear up the check that Guy wrote for her, but Guy wants her to make an honest living. And even though his ring's got no power, he's betting it'll make a comeback. Just like he will. Okay, much like episode, well, not episode, Issue 3 of Guy Gardner, this is a stereotypical what Thomas D.J. and Derek Ferguson would refer to as a punchy, punchy run-run episode. Issue. I'll get it right eventually. It's following that same formula, but this time around there's a bit more dialogue and a bit more plot development. Obviously because in Issue 3 all Guy said was next. But there you have it. Plus it also had the wonderful additional bonus of having Lobo in the book, and... Again, if you're a 90s comic in the DC universe, Lobo had to make an appearance at least once. And they also kind of had to resolve the plot line that was put forth in the Guy Gardner Reborn series. Lobo's not one to get, well, one-upped by anyone, especially not Guy Gardner, and you kind of had to expect that he would make it back in there. And just the fact that he's here and Staten's drawing him is just the icing on the cake for me. But getting into notes, let's go ahead and start with the cover. And again, I can't stop praising Staten's artwork here. It's really suited well for Lobo, as he is perhaps the cartooniest character in the, den, in the then DC universe. He's a big, hulking, muscular guy with essentially a creepy kiss clown face, a biker jacket, carries a chain, and rides through space without having to have any type of breathing apparatus at all. Even Superman now can't go into space for any extended period of time without, you know, a, a rebreather and a, uh, I believe it was a teleportation device. So, yeah, Lobo is pretty ridiculous and cartoony, and Staten is the perfect person to draw him. Page 2, panel 1, it looks like Guy is channeling a bit of Tony Soprano about, well, eight years early, in saying the typical New York gangster line of forget about it. I also love, I, I mentioned this last episode, that I really love the use of dialect to define the character. Here's another example of it. We're giving Guy a sort of New York accent, and I like that about him. Then on page 4, panel 4, we get Sally saying that her business plan is to open a S-or, an escort service slash detective agency. 
And I'm kind of wondering where I've heard that before. Oh, isn't that basically the plot line for Dollhouse? No, I, I never watched Dollhouse, and as far as I know, no one else did either. Plus, essentially, the job is really not that far off from, from her original job. She's just adding the detective angle to it, so there you have it. Page 7, you get Guy asking Lobo why he wants the ring, since technically he's invincible. He can't be killed. Uh, if you read any of his solo series in the 90s, you've seen him blown up, cut in half, pretty much everything, and he can't die. So he wonders why he wants the trinket like the ring, and Lobo's only response is because you owed it to him and you made a deal with him. And Lobo always collects on his deals. Now, I guess in essence that is a kind of noble thing, but the fact that Lobo is a murderous, psychopathic killer, not such a good thing. Then on pages 9 and 10, we get some good inner dialogue from uh, Guy, as Lobo calls Guy a loser. And I'll just go ahead and give you the inner dialogue, because it explains to me what Guy is feeling at this moment, and it helps define the character. Lobo calls him a loser, and he thinks to himself, me? A loser. Right. Hal Jordan became GL instead of me, just because he was closer. He made me stop being a GL. I lost both my careers and my girlfriend, Carrie Limbo. Maybe Ice, too. Leading the league's been taken from me more than once. My personality was taken. I even had a deed to Earth, but Superman took it. I lost a lot, but that don't make me a loser. My whole life I was told how important it is to be on top, to be number one. You might say it was beaten into me. Being a hero's being number one? Can't be. Nothing less. And uh, the little hint of it, that the idea of being number one has been beaten into guys, something that you should you know, keep in mind uh, for uh, some later issues. It'll definitely come into play then. Page 12, we've got Guy being crashed into, or Guy crashing Lobo into a building and then bringing it down on him. Luckily this time around, instead of it being a regular building in New York City, it was actually a condemned one. So he's actually doing, I guess, Giuliani maybe at the time, a favor for bringing it down. Then on page 14, panels 3 and 4, Lobo says probably from a whole family of losers. And the next panel, we see Guy just completely irked. you got to kind of think that Lobo insulting his family, probably not the best thing to do. And I think this is, again, one of the beginnings of the seeding of what Guy had to deal with in the early part of his life, especially with his family. And on page 15, we get more of Guy's dialogue about what he thinks about being a loser. He says, and you're right, I am a loser. And Lobo says, glad you you admit it, but that won't stop me from killing you. And Guy replies, some say I'm a loser because of my anger. Well, I know where I got that from. No, I'm a loser because throughout my whole life I've had everything taken from me. Well, being a hero is the only place I can let out my anger and do some good. And nobody's taking that away. Nobody, no how, nowhere. 
And again, this is interesting character development. The guy is taking and channeling his anger about things and channeling it into something that he believes is good. Again, it might not be uh, the way most people effectively do this. It may not be the Superman or the Green Lantern way of doing it, but Guy is using the frustration and anger that he feels to try and do something heroic. He's trying to be noble, but he just, for whatever reason, can't get it right the way that it's expected of most heroes. Skipping ahead to uh, page 19, panel 8, we see how much pain Guy can take as Lobo is just pounding him after he's lost the uh, power of his ring. And all you see in this uh, panel are just fists flying. You don't see him hitting Guy, but you know in the previous panel he's pretty bruised, bruised and beat up. And you hear the onomatopoeia of you know the fist hitting Guy. And knowing these fists are Lobo's and he's probably not pulling any punches, Guy's taking a serious pounding here. It's another great example of the DC Universe and the uh, writers and artists of this time depicting violence in their book without having to be overtly graphic or gory. Again, this is something I wish they would do in the new DC Universe, but... It works here, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be distasteful. And then finally, on page twenty-two, we get the uh, palindrome in the lap, or whatever the heck they are, saying that uh, Guy Gardner is now in debt for fifty million wubs, whatever wubs are, some alien money. Let's hope it's kind of like the. Uh, Dollar to can dollar to yen conversion rate, and it's only like about sixty three dollars. Let's hope for guy's sake. But anyhow, that concludes my notes for the issue. Let's go ahead and look at some of the ads and see what kind of retro stuff they were selling in the wonderful year of nineteen ninety three. And on the front inside cover, we get a big yellow background with two purple beings in there touching their foreheads together, saying "consume mass quantities" and. If you don't know what it is, the image is of Dan Aykroyd and I think Lorraine Newman as the Coneheads, and it was the Conehead movie that they came out around this time, and or that they came out with around this time, and not the best Saturday Night Live outing, but definitely not the worst either. I'm looking at you, Night at the Roxbury. Later on, we get an ad for Be Batman's Boss. It says, Now, you, yes you, can be ma- named the publisher of DC Comics. Be Batman's Boss for the day. And basically, it uh, the grand prize was a family trip, of four, family trip for four to DC Comics in New York. Be named publisher of DC Comics for the day. Do lunch with uh, DC editors, writers, and artists. Be the star of a future issue of the Batman Adventures and take home a huge selection of the Batman the Animated Series licensed products. Now, this would be a prize that I would have been excited to win. Unfortunately, I would have had to cut out the uh, coupon out of my book. And let's see the next page. Well, the next page is a uh, wonderful advertisement for The Adventures of Superman number 500, where... He battled with Doomsday, was the fight for his life, but now the Man of Steel is fighting to live again. Uh, I don't think I'd want to cut through that image. That's a nice picture of Superman fighting there. 
few more pages in, we get the Mile High Comics ad with all the big uh, comic books of the time. A lot of books they're having for only $1 each, but uh, some of the ones that they have promoted are Batman Riddler, the uh, X-Men number one with the, I think, 17 different variant covers, Mephisto and the Fantastic Four, She-Hulk, and the uh, Dark Horse Aliens Hive book. Uh, Dark Horse, again, was putting out really good uh, property books, and the Aliens ones, I remember, were fantastic. Probably well worth the read. Maybe after this, I'll maybe after I get done with the uh, Green Lantern thing, I'll do an Aliens podcast. Well, after I do the uh, Dynasty in Dallas podcast that I promised J. David Weeder I'd do. Then the next page, we get the hodgepodge page again. Nothing really new there, except the uh, quarter panel uh, ad at the bottom is for... It's for Bloodlines. Yeah, it's coming soon. Bloodlines. Look out for it. We go a ways into the uh, next advertisement, which is the DC subscription page, which... Again, doesn't have Superman, but it does have Batman, Wonder Woman, and the uh, Tim Drake Robin. Really nice artwork there, and typical subscription page for all of the DC comics being published published at the time. Then we get some more ridiculous Kelly Jones art with the uh, title copy, The Batman is Reeling, Robin is Drowning in the Sewers Under Gotham, Cornelius Sturk is Stealing Hearts, literally, Major Crawl wants Commissioner Gordon replaced. The Scarecrow hunts the Joker. Strick and the Scarecrow are masters of fear, but they'll but they've never met Bane. Nightfall number five in Batman four ninety four and <sighs> Kelly Jones' art is interesting, but I just can't get over the enormous ears that he puts on the cowl. They look really really ridiculous. Not a fan of that. Otherwise, the art's pretty good, but the ears just ruin it for me. A few more pages in, we get the uh, half-page ad for Twin City Books and all the uh, price listing for the books at the time. Then we get the uh, bottom half of the page. Is there goes the neighborhood with Blood Syndicate, the uh, milestone book. Covered that before. Uh, the next page is the DC Universe page, which... Uh, is interrupted by one of the members of uh, the Bloodlines characters, those weird aliens. And this is the big purple one who's got the sort of red furry head. I don't know. I read all of one's, one Bloodlines crossover when I had to read the uh, Man of Steel issue for that uh, issue for that episode that I did with uh, uh, Mike and Jeffrey over it from Crisis to Crisis and. If that was indication of what the Bloodlines crossover was like, I'm glad I only read that one issue. But it does have uh, an interesting image at the bottom with a giant question mark to one side saying, He is here, or is he? And you get this uh, guy with the Superman S shield that looks like he's wearing a jacket of some sort, and he's got a kind of short, spiky-looking haircut. This could be the Man of Steel, and you'd never know. Nothing really to mention in the Guy Talk column. Uh, people praising Guy for his issues and Guy talking back to him and basically BSing with him as well. So, fun stuff there. Uh, the uh, back inside cover is an advertisement for Rocky D, Dinosaur Extraordinaire. And it sees a bunch of kids uh, who discover a 
hipster dinosaur. Uh, I guess the best parallel I could make would be think of Poochie from The Simpsons and then make him about, oh, 50 times more lame and you'll get what uh, Rocky D is. Let me go ahead and give you a dramatic reading of it. The title card at the top says, Introducing Rocky D, Dinosaur Extraordinaire. And the first panel has Rocky D sitting on a, uh, I guess, a pink Cadillac while three kids look on. And one of the kids, who's in a pink hat and pink sweater jacket, says, Hey, it's a dinosaur! Then, of course, in the next panel, Rocky D says, Wrong, Frontosaurus Breath. I'm not just a dinosaur. I'm Rocky D, dinosaur extraordinaire. Then, in the next panel, one of the kids says, Wow! You eat rocks? And then, (laughs) the next panel, we get Rocky D, Dinosaur Extraordinaire, saying, Oh no, not those hard things you find on the ground, but these. Totally cool, soft and chewy Brock's Rocks candies. They just look like rocks. And then the next panel, the kids are eating rocks, saying, They don't taste like rocks. Which is kind of disturbing, because, you know, he must have something to compare it to. But he continues on. They're great. Next kid says, Excellent. And the final kid says, Yeah, five awesome fruit flavors. The uh, final panel has the uh, bag of Brock's Rocks with uh, Rocky D on front uh, saying, Now you can get your rocks from Brock's. Brock's Rocks. Now, let's get rockin'. Ugh. It's not quite uh, a Hostess ad, and not even quite a a Capri Sun ad, but it is extremely awful. And finally, on the back outside cover, we get an ad for Double Dragon 3. I know we covered this the past couple issues. I guess they're really trying to sell the heck out of it, which kind of boggles my mind, because Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter are coming out, so why Double Dragon 3? Who knows? But that does it for this issue episode. I'd like to thank everyone who wrote in uh, this past couple of weeks. I really appreciate getting emails from people, and I really am glad to be able to read them on the show and actually reply to you guys. Thank you all for listening. I really can't tell you how much it means to me that this silly little show about a one-off character that's really only popular to about, you know, maybe 1% of 1% of the people reading comic books right now is actually getting feedback from people. So, thank you all for writing in. Come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, 
libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast, and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was People Are Strange by Echo and the Bunnymen, off their album Crystal Days, 1979-1999. Again, if you want to buy this, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to buy it, Echo and the Bunnymen are awesome, go ahead and head over to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.lipson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go searching for a bunch of Echo and the Bunnymen songs including People Are Strange. Also at Amazon.com, you can buy DVDs, books, TVs, stereos, electronic equipment, everything you could possibly ever want in your life. And when you buy from Amazon.com through the Two True Freaks website, a small amount of the purchase that you make at Amazon.com will go back to help making sure that the Two True Freaks website stays up in perpetuity, making sure that Excellent shows like The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror and Walking Dead Wednesday never get canned. Until Scott and Chris tell me to go take a hike.